Well, friends, please stand for the reading of God's Word. On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Edu, saying, I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. Then I said, What are these, my Lord? The angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, These are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, against which you have been angry these seventy years? And the Lord answered, Gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. So the angel who talked with me said, Cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts. And the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again. Thus says the Lord of hosts, My city shall again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jer Jerusalem. Indeed, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. May he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. Please pray with me, our gracious God and Father, as we now consider these words from the prophet Zechariah. I pray that you would give us encouragement, hope, and strength. We pray these things in the matchless name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, rising to 14,255 feet above sea level stands the crown jewel of Rocky Mountain National Park. It's Long's Peak. It's an incredible mountain. If you see it in person, it's immediately identifiable. It has this massive diamond face on the front of it that's like a 900-foot drop, just a sheer drop from the summit to the lake at its base called Chasm Lake. And for those who want to hike it, it's not for the faint of heart. It's a nine-and-a-half-mile hike one way. You have to start between 2 and 3 a.m. in the morning. You only have a two-month window in which it's not considered technical to climb. And it's a peak I've had the privilege of climbing a few different times. I've been turned back more times than I've been able to summit it. But when you're hiking up there at night in the dark and you're just going by headlamp, the first eight and a half miles kind of fly by. By the time you get to what's called the boulder field, you've enjoyed these wonderful trails that the National Park has put in place. You're able to sit down and you're able to watch the most spectacular sunrise you'll ever get to see in your life, that whole diamond face, 
is turned red and gold and orange and blue. Orange and blue, like, you know, the Broncos, orange and blue. It's beautiful. But everything changes when you pass through a feature known as the keyhole. The keyhole is an opening in the rock that allows you to pass from the north side to the south side of the mountain. And after you've enjoyed that nice, warm morning sun, you kind of enter into the shadow of the mountain. And things go from being a hike to truly a climb. It is a class three climb. You have to pull yourself up by hands and feet. The last mile of the hike is 1,000 feet in elevation gain. Long's Peak has claimed the title of deadliest 14er in the state of Colorado. It's taken the lives of 70 people. When you pass through the keyhole, you have to go through places called the ledges and the trough, and you come to what is probably the most visually intimidating and ominous of all, the narrows. I remember one time in particular, we passed through the keyhole straight into the clouds. You couldn't see above you, you couldn't see in front of you, but you could see everything below you. And at 13,000 feet, when you're sitting on the edge of a ravine, hundreds of feet of drop off and you're trying to catch your breath, and wind is ripping through and the sun isn't around, it is dark, it is ominous, you feel completely exposed and totally alone. I remember we were sitting there, we were catching our breath. You don't want to get disoriented at altitude. You look down and there's a famous rock outcropping at the bottom of the ravine that's known as the hearse because that's what it looks like. It's the last place on earth you'd want to be if trouble came. It's that kind of tone and timber, that feeling you get in a situation like that that's directly related to the context of our passage this morning. This is what it feels like for the people of God. Remember, all the way back in 722 BC, the Assyrians had defeated the northern kingdom. 586 BC, the Babylonians conquered the southern kingdom. The people are exiled from the land. Jeremiah gives a prophecy that they will not return for 70 years. Finally, the Persians step in. Things have changed. And in 536 BC, Ezra and Nehemiah lead the people of God back to Jerusalem with the purpose of rebuilding the temple and rebuilding the walls. But when the 50,000 Jews who returned started the work, they faced significant opposition from the surrounding nations. So much so that they were so afraid they stopped everything for 16 years. It seemed as if there was no hope and no future. Many of them felt like the Lord had forgotten them and had abandoned them, had left them there all alone. They felt exposed and afraid. And it's precisely at this point that Zechariah the prophet brings words of comfort and hope, but not before having visions in the night, visions in the darkness of their situation and their context. So let's look at our passage a little more closely. On the 24th day, this is verse 7, on the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, 
the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edu, saying, I saw in the night, and behold, a man was riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. The first thing we should see, if we're trying to picture this in our mind's eye, if you're trying to kind of understand what this vision is all about, it's dark and it's fearful. It's in the night that Zechariah is seeing a general sitting on his war steed down in the glen, in the low point. Glen is not the best translation that the ESV could have done. I mean, the NIV, the NASB, they call it in the ravine. But in the Hebrew, it's at the bottom of the abyss. It's in the depths. So Zechariah, if you're imagining it as if you were Zechariah, you're looking down into this ravine, you're standing with an angel, and there's a man who's riding on his horse, and behind him are all these other horses with soldiers on it. And it's dark. It's frightening. And he doesn't quite understand what's going on. And so he asks the angel who's with him to kind of interpret. Look at verse 9. Then I said, what are these, my Lord? And the angel who talked with me said, I will show you what they are. And so the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, these are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing in the myrtle trees and said, we have patrolled the earth and behold, it remains at rest. And so this is not good news. Here, these angels are going to and fro throughout the earth. They're patrolling, they're gathering intelligence, and they're bringing it back to their commander, the angel of the Lord. This is someone that we've seen before many times in the Old Testament. This is pre-incarnate Christ. This is Jesus, commander of the armies of heaven. He's down in the abyss. He's down in the dark. Angels are coming, and they are bringing word to him of everything that's transpiring in the earth. He knows of everything that is happening. It makes you think of like those old World War II movies where there would be like a giant table with a map and they would have all the pieces in place to show where the enemy forces are. And as intelligence comes in, they move pieces around, they take pieces off, they add pieces on. Here the Lord is getting report and the news is terrible. The earth is at rest. Now on first reading, that doesn't sound like such a bad thing. Except that while the earth is at rest, the people who are in Jerusalem are suffering greatly at the hands of the enemies of God. These people are at rest because they've united themselves against the Lord's people. And so the question is, what will the Lord of hosts do? Look at verse 12. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah against which you have been angry these 70 years? He prays for the people. He prays. He cries out to the Father. He says, how long are you going to let this continue? How long will this injustice be taken out on the people whom you've called back to Jerusalem? 
the 70 years that Jeremiah had prophesied had been served. How long, O Lord? That's a prayer that we can relate to. It's not a unique prayer. The psalmist prays it many times. The people of Israel over and over again throughout their difficult history have cried out to God saying, how long, O Lord? The church through history in the face of terrible persecution and suffering has cried out to God saying, how long, O Lord? How many times do we say it today? For those of you who are 50, 55 and up, how many things do you see when you turn on the news that you never thought you would see championed or upheld as good, right, true, and beautiful that's in our culture today? We see things that are an abomination to the Lord that our culture, our post-Christian culture, thinks is okay. And as Christians, do we not, when we see those things, wonder and ask and pray to God and say, how long will this stand? How far is this going to go? We worry about what this world is going to be like for our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren. Things seem to be at like a rapid decrease of morality. Personally, we pray this prayer. When we find ourselves in situations where we are suffering or we're discouraged or we're frustrated at our circumstances, there are times where we pray this prayer and the attitude of our heart is that we feel like we've been forgotten or abandoned or ignored by God. But here's the good news from Zechariah. The Lord has not forgotten his people. Verse 13, it says, the Lord answers gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. Move to 14 here. So the angel who talked with me said to me, cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. That is an expression of his deep felt love for his people. His jealousy is provoked when he sees this injustice being done to the Jews in Jerusalem. He will not let it stand. He loves them. They are his own. Not only that, but look at 15. And I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they have furthered the disaster. He's saying that these nations, they've taken advantage of the terrible condition that the Jews have found themselves in. The Lord was bringing punishment through the nation of Babylon, and now these other nations are piling on more than the Lord will allow. But he has not forgotten his people. Here are the words of comfort. Look at verse 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. He says, I am with you. I am with you. 
My presence is here. I have returned to Jerusalem. Not only that, keep going in verse 16. He says, my house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts. And the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts. My cities shall again overflow with prosperity. And the Lord will again comfort Zion and choose Jerusalem. In the Old Testament, the temple was the picture of the dwelling of God in the midst of his people. And so he's giving this prophecy, he's giving this promise, you've come back to Jerusalem with the goal of rebuilding the temple and it will be completed because I am with you, I will protect you, I will be among my people. I mean, those are words of encouragement to the 50,000 Jews who've returned with Ezra and Nehemiah to Jerusalem in the face of terrible opposition, in the face of terrible famine that they are wrestling with and struggling through. The Lord says, this is coming to an end. My cities will overflow with prosperity. The land will be renewed in a sense. There's this promise of restoration. The wall will be rebuilt. I will draw my measuring line around my city. He's giving these great promises. And while these promises find temporary fulfillment in the days of Zechariah, there's something else beyond the horizon, something greater that the Lord has in mind. These are but shadows. These are but pictures of what he's really going to do. So four years after this prophecy is given, the temple is rebuilt. The wall is put back in place. The gates are lifted in the entries to Jerusalem. And the nations surrounding sit in fear. They tremble. But what comes next for the people of Israel is a period of 400 years of silence. Has the Lord forgotten us? Has the Lord abandoned us? The Romans are going to come. They're going to rule over the people of God. The Lord has more in store than these material blessings. These signs of his favor are anticipating the greatest gift that he would give, his son. This passage is a fantastic passage to prepare us for Advent. Because the picture of the Lord returning to his people finds its ultimate fulfillment in Emmanuel, the true consolation of Israel. Jesus is the one who is going to come and be with his people. And I love this text because he is found all over this chapter in this prophecy of Zechariah. He is the Lord of hosts. He is the angel of the Lord. And when you think about where he is in this passage, it's truly incredible and very encouraging. And it, it points us to Christmas. I mean, consider this for a minute. He's in the ravine and he stands in the midst of the myrtle trees. In the lowest, darkest, most ominous place. Down by the hearse on Long's Peak. There is a place where there is peace and safety and protection and rest. It's with the one who stands in the midst of the myrtle trees. These trees, we didn't talk about them earlier, but they are a sign of luxury 
and peace and safety. And so though it may seem like that would be the last place you'd want to go, when you see the man who stands in the midst of those myrtle trees, it's exactly where you need to go. When we find ourselves in terrible and dark and difficult circumstances in life, there is only one place we can turn to and find protection and rest and hope. And it's in the Lord Jesus who left the glories of heaven to step into the muck and mire and sin and grit of this fallen world. Not only is he in the ravine and amid the myrtles, but he also is the general and commander of the armies of heaven. We've talked about this before, and it's extremely encouraging. There is a spiritual war going on around us all the time, and Christ is in complete and total control. He sovereignly knows everything that is taking place, and he is dispatching his angels to protect us, to watch over us, to defend us. It makes you think back to 2 Kings chapter 6 when we were looking at the life of Elisha. And the Syrian army had surrounded the city of Jerusalem and were prepared to destroy it. And the king was afraid and Elisha prayed that his eyes would be opened. And when the king's eyes were opened, he saw the whole host of heaven that was prepared to protect and defend his people. And that is no different today. He loves us he cares for us, and he has not forgotten us. Did you catch what Jesus does in this passage? He is the one who intercedes for the people of Israel. He's the one who says the prayer, How long, O Lord? The book of Hebrews reminds us that that is exactly what he is doing right now in heaven. He is sitting at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, making intercession for you and for me. He knows our every weakness, our every pain. He knows the different temptations we face and the challenges we have. And he is crying out to the Lord on our behalf. There is no better person to be praying for us than the Lord Jesus Christ. I love what Spurgeon says about this passage, specifically about this part that he has not forgotten. He writes, God cares for his people. And if this is true of his church collectively, it is also necessarily true of each individual member. You may fear that the Lord has passed you by, but it is not so. He who counts the stars and calls them by their names is in no danger of forgetting his own children. He knows your case as thoroughly as if you were the only creature he ever made or the only saint he ever loved. Approach him and be at peace. But the greatest part of this entire passage to me is that he has come to be with his people. He is Emmanuel, God who is with us. Advent is truly the most wonderful time of year because we are reminded that our God came and he died the death he did. He suffered the way that he did so that we would never be separated from him again. 
And so we celebrate Advent. We look forward to Advent. We are excited about the Christmas season. But we're also reminded that the, that the pinnacle, ultimate fulfillment of all of this is that he's going to come again. That he will come riding on the clouds. That every eye will see him, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And that with him will come the end of sin and death and pain and suffering and sorrow. And with him will come the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem, the new temple. And we will blissfully enjoy for all of eternity being in his presence forever. So this text calls us to trust him, to trust in his sovereignty, in his providence, in the work that he is doing in your life, to run to him when things seem the very worst they could possibly be. Like when we run to him, we run to the one who offers peace and protection. And then it's a call for us to look forward to the day when we will be with him forever. He promised, never will I leave you and never will I forsake you. So our prayer is the same as that of John in the book of Revelation. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly.